Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. Um, its website is batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and there have been well over 300 interviews to date, so if you want to check out the archives, go there and look under the past interviews menu. This enterprise is made possible by the generous support of appreciative viewers and listeners, and there's a donate button on the site, so thank you for that. My guest today is the Reverend Matthew Wright. Matthew is an Episcopal priest, writer, and retreat leader working to renew the Christian wisdom tradition within a wider interspiritual framework. He writes a monthly column, Belonging, for Contemplative Journal, and serves as priest in charge at St. Gregory's Episcopal Church in Woodstock, New York. Matthew lives with his wife, Yannick, alongside the Brothers of Holy Cross Monastery in West Park, New York. You can learn more about his work through the Center for Spiritual Resources, which I will be linking to, um, and linking to several things, from his page on BatGap.com. And I know Matthew, kind of, from the Science and Non-Duality Conference, where he's gone for the last couple of years. I had to miss some of his things that he did there, because I was doing other things in other rooms. But I always listen to him later on when the Science and Non-Duality people put the talks up online. And I've always found his talks to be very inspiring and interesting. So it's, it's really a joy to have him on today. I think we're going to have a, a great conversation. So thanks, Matthew. Uh, thanks, Rick. It's great to be here. So I want to talk about all kinds of things with you. To give people some main points, as I read through your stuff, here's some things that jumped out at me, questions that we might talk about. Is Jesus alive and interceding in human affairs? If God is omnipresent, then we're looking at him. There's a thing from the Gospel of Thomas you quoted saying, Come to know that which is before your eyes, and what is hidden from you will be revealed. We'll talk about interspirituality. We'll talk about the notion that you are not the body, or maybe you are. We want to talk about Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, whose name I probably just mispronounced, but whose thinking is very inspiring both to Matthew and me, although I just more or less discovered him. We'll talk about the Divine Mother and the Divine Feminine in the world. We'll talk about devotion, something that Matthew terms the second axial age, belief versus experience, intermixture of spiritual traditions in people's lives, such as people who might call themselves a Buddhist Christian. <laughs> so there's some topics that jumped out at me as, as interesting to talk about, and maybe we'll take it elsewhere in, in the discussion and also... Online viewers are, of course, welcome to send in questions as we go along. There's a question form on the upcoming interviews page on batgap.com. But for starters, let's get to know a little bit more about you, Matthew, where you came from, you know, how you got interested in spirituality, what kind of major milestones you've you know, gone through on your path. I've been serving as a priest now, I guess, for about three years, mm -hmm. and I think my spiritual journey started sort of unconsciously unfolding late in high school. I'd grown up in a much more kind of fundamentalist, charismatic, Pentecostal type of Christianity, and I had a high school teacher who was actually a devotee of Paramahamsa Yogananda, of all beings, of all people, <laughs> and she was the first person to ever ask me if I thought God was within me. And I had grown up with a very sort of um, dualistic conception of God that, you know, deity was in another dimension and sort of watching down on us. And so that question, as I sat with it, inverted my whole theological framework, worldview. And I remember sitting on the porch at my parents' house one day and having this overwhelming 
sense experience of God in the apple tree in our front yard. And so that sort of opened up a kind of realm of nature mysticism, I guess, encountering God in the natural world. And I remember asking my dad at the time, asking, do you think God is in everything, in the rocks and the trees and the grass? And expecting him to sort of scoff, you know, coming from the same kind of fundamentalist church. And he paused for a minute and he said, well, yeah. And I thought, why did no one ever tell me this? <laughs> so that sort of opened a journey into um, the more contemplative dimension of faith. Uh, it's around that time that I was turned on to the Upanishads and the Tao Te Ching and Eastern texts and traditions. If you ask the most fundamentals of Christians, is God omnipresent, <laughs> wouldn't they say yes? I mean, doesn't it say that in the Bible someplace? I don't think the word omnipresent shows up in Scripture, but a sense of the all-pervading uh, reality, presence of God is certainly fundamental to Christian tradition. But I think sometimes they think of omnipresence almost in the sense of God can see everywhere rather than a sense that God is actually one with all things. Sort of like he's up in the sky in some spaceship with a cosmic uh, telescope checking us, like Santa Claus. He knows if we've been naughty or nice, but he's not necessarily right. <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> right. So as you began to transition to uh, reading the Upanishads and stuff like that, was there any kind of theological rapids that you had to go through on, in your boat of life? I mean, was it rough? Was it awkward? Was it beginning to clash with what you had been ingrained with? Sure, I think it was really exciting and also frightening when you've grown up in a sort of fundamentalist worldview and you start questioning it, you think, you know, maybe you're risking your eternal salvation. Yeah. And so there's something fearful in that. But I, I think there was a shift for me one day when I realized how much love my parents felt for me and that if we imagine divinity as the most loving uh, parent, which is you know, the sort of language I grew up in, I don't think with, I don't think of God so much in parental terms anymore, but if God is supposed to be the ultimate loving source, and my parents could never damn me to hell for eternity, then how could the source of all life <laughs> do the same thing? Yeah. Once I sort of got my mind around that, I thought, okay, I, I think it's okay to ask these questions and to you know, go down these roads. So this is still high school, right? Right, that would have been late in high school, and then wandered into an Episcopal church one evening. And Before I get to that, let me just ask you, did yeah. you go through any crazy teenage stuff? You live in near Woodstock, New York, and that's notorious for certain things. Did you go through any of that stuff, or did you have a pretty pure, smooth ride? Nothing too crazy. I grew up in, uh, actually down south in North Carolina, in the mountains oh. of North Carolina. Maybe in my college years, but nothing too wild or out of the ordinary. Okay. Moving on, uh, before I went to college, I wandered into an Episcopal church, and it sort of opened for me the whole Catholic side of Christian tradition, where all of the saints and mystics and contemplatives had been hanging out that I didn't have access to in Protestant Christianity, where you sort of jump from Jesus and the apostles to Martin Luther. You sort of bypass, you know, a thousand years of Christian history. Discovering all those voices, Meister Eckhart, Teresa of Avila, Julian of Norwich, John of the Cross, that whole rich contemplative lineage, mystical lineage, suddenly there was a reference point for everything I was encountering in those Eastern texts in the Upanishads. And I thought, ah, all this is here in Christianity. It's sort of buried, maybe swept under the rug, but it was all there as well. I was just reading a Dana Sawyer's book last night about Houston Smith, and he, he was talking about Aldous Huxley and, and how Huxley kind of thought that religions were basically an obstacle to enlightenment 
because of all the sort of like narrow-mindedness and the degeneration that seems to take place after the founder dies and the thing and centuries mm-hmm. pass. Whereas uh, Houston Smith disagreed with him, although he they were good friends and everything, and he he was. Uh, you know, saying that no, actually, all the different religions can be paths to God if you know where to look. Yeah, I, I think at their very best, the religions are wonderful ways into the mystery of God, into a journey of awakening, because at their best, they hold all the things we need for a balanced path of awakening. They hold devotional practices, they hold contemplative practices, they have ritual and language uh, that give meaning and shape experience, community, mentors, elders who have walked a little further down the path and can help uh, guide you along the way. And any traditional spiritual system at its best has all those components held together in an integral way. Now, like you said, oftentimes we receive these traditions in really degenerative or fragmented ways. We don't receive a tradition in its fullness, which was part of the problem for me coming from that more Protestant Christianity where I didn't have access to a lot of uh, the pieces of the puzzle that, that were there but weren't being made readily available. Yeah. My former teacher used to say, knowledge crumbles on the hard rocks of ignorance. And uh, you know, what he meant by that is that you know, someone like Jesus or somebody can come out with an absolutely fabulous, pure teaching. But, you know, as Jesus himself said, he always would say, you know, those who have ears to hear it and pearls before swine and stuff like that. So that, you know, he's saying one thing, people are hearing another. And then as time passes, it becomes like one of those party games where the message is passed from one to the next and it ends up being something completely different than what was originally spoken. Would you concur with with that perspective? I think that's often the case. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As, As you move away from a lineage founder, from the awakened experience of a lineage founder, it's certainly possible to move into increasingly shallow forms of, of the tradition that become just sort of, you know, mechanistic observance. You're just following empty ritual, um, reading empty words, because the, the living impulse behind it maybe isn't, isn't there anymore. Aside from that, why do you think that there's always sort of been this, at least from my perspective, from my understanding, this kind of conflict between the administrator types of a religion and the mystics of a religion. And usually the administrator types seem to win out. Why is there conflict? Well, you know, as institutions form, they also form institutional-sized egos. And institutions want to self-perpetuate, keep themselves alive. And often it's at the cost of sort of living spiritual impulse that, that brought the lineage into being in the first place. So it seems like a degeneration that happens in lots of traditions, and then you have to have a, a reformation, a revolution, uh, another voice that comes, uh, reclaims the buried treasure, sort of breathes new fire into the lineage, or, or kindles you know, the warm coals beneath the rubble. Um, but it, it, it seems to be a pretty typical process across traditions. But you seem to feel that we needn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, that we can actually resuscitate these traditions and, you know, as you say, clear away the ashes and find the, the glowing coals and maybe get the fires burning again. Yeah, honestly, I think that they're, in many ways, our best hope for the future, that we really genuinely need the traditions because of the treasures and practices that they hold. They hold the tools that best mature and ground and develop the human soul. And like I said, at their best, they hold them within an integral system and framework. Now, the religions, as we sort of enter into a global era, 
it seems like all the religions need to shuck off their superiority complexes, their competition, one-upmanship, all that has to go. So it seems like we sort of need each other. Human beings need the treasures that the religions hold and the practices and frameworks that they have. And then the religions also need human beings who can help the religions themselves mature and step into a new era. Just last week, I interviewed someone who had a profound series of mystical experiences, Mary Reed. Quite unwittingly and unexpectedly, she wasn't like, didn't have a mystical background, wasn't looking for them, but all this stuff started happening to her. One of which was that she found herself experiencing Jesus on the cross, actually kind of entering his consciousness and experiencing what he was experiencing at that time. And she also had a similar experience with Buddha at his enlightenment. Do you think that Jesus, well, there's two parts to this question. What do you make of such experiences? And with all the millions of people who are praying to Jesus or to Buddha or to various founders of various religions, do you feel that these entities, these beings, are actually alive and well in some dimension Mm -hmm. and are interceding in human affairs, blessing people, pouring blessings upon people? (laughs) Or do you feel that they have just merged into the absolute and that that something else is happening when people pour out their devotion to men who have died thousands of years ago? I think it's a little bit of a both-and kind of situation. I do think that these uh, living masters are available to us, are accessible to us, Does that mean it's in a personal sort of individuated way? The way I like to think about it is that the name of God, so to speak, that each of us speaks into being through our own life, that these great souls, a Jesus, a Buddha, their impact in the planet creates something of a shockwave, and that the qualities of being that they bring into the life of the planet, um, the qualities that are associated with the heart of Jesus, gentleness, mercy, Uh, belovedness, humility, love, those qualities that are the essence of him, uh, the essence of his personhood, they're still accessible and available. That we can tune in through our our hearts, tune in to the heart of Jesus. That everything he was in essence is still available in the ground of our own hearts. And I think these figures have become uh, in some ways archetypes within human consciousness. The, The Buddha, Jesus. So I I do think there's a living presence that's accessible to the heart. And I also think each of them continues through what in Christian language we would call their mystical body. You know, we speak about the mystical body of Christ. In that sense, Christ isn't just one person, Jesus, but is an ongoing unfolding body or collective that continues to embody the qualities that Jesus brought into being and carry them in a living way into the world. So yes, I do think they're accessible in, in many ways. That's nice. Yeah, I like that idea that each of them kind of infuses certain qualities into collective consciousness that maybe hadn't been there or hadn't been there very much, and there's this huge sort of surge of certain qualities, and it ri- has a ripple effect over thousands of years. It's kind of a nice thought. And you know, to put it in just really uh, personal terms, I think about when my, my dad died a few years ago, uh, very unexpectedly. I came to find that he was still very much accessible to me, not through memory, not through remembering time we spent together or uh, events that happened, but through actually calling into presence the qualities that were his most essential personhood. And that in my own heart, I could 
tune into that and that in a way that was still alive and available in the universe or, or as I'd like to say, in the heart of God. And so if that's possible for someone we've known in our own personal histories, I think these, the big ones, um, <laughs> certainly their impact still reverberates through the planet. Yeah. And actually, if we take the Bible literally in terms of Jesus you know, rising after, three days after the crucifixion and then appearing to the, to the disciples right. in, in a subtle body or celestial body or whatever it was, then if he was around for a month or so after, <laughs> after right. the crucifixion, well, then why not now still? And there's actually a sense of continuing subtilization of the presence of Jesus um, in the gospel accounts that um, first they know him corporeally, they know him in the flesh, and then after his, his crucifixion, there's the, the resurrection experience where he appears in some much subtler form that sometimes is recognizable, sometimes isn't. And then the way St. Paul says it, in what's traditionally called his ascension, St. Paul says, he was raised far above all things in order that he might fill all things. Mm. So it's a sense that he's, he's now utterly ubiquitous, that his presence now sort of just pervades the universe, that he's filling all things. So available at any point, you know, no longer localized, but universally present. Wow. What comes to mind is Star Wars when Yoda died. And he said, now, I, I forget the exact uh, you know, dialogue, but it was like, okay, now I'm going to become much more powerful if you think I was powerful before. <laughs> right, right, right. And then you get, at the end of Star Wars, you get them appearing sort of in yeah, form. Right, in Yoda and, form and Anakin, uh, Obi-Wan. And uh, maybe it's like that. Maybe when needed, they can manifest in personal presence, but maybe they're available in a much more universal capacity. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, with all the stories of near-death experiences and, and uh, you know, reincarnation memory and all that stuff that are popular TV shows these days, it would seem that, you know, there's a fairly common collective acceptance of the notion that we don't die when the body dies. And if someone was a great being with, with tremendous influence while he was alive, one would expect that he would or she would continue to be a great being and with, again, tremendous influence after the body dies. And I do think that uh, beings take on roles of cosmic servanthood and that awakening beings, that's really the task, is to become a cosmic servant. Uh, serving, deepening disclosure of God through the planet, uh, serving the awakening of the human family. And so I think those who are no longer with us in physical form, they certainly continue as cosmic servants who are continuing to guide and help evolve the life of the planet. I love that. So let's get back to you a little bit. You know, you were in high school when we last left off, and you were starting to read the Upanishads and things like that and getting inspired, but you eventually ended up going to India. That's right. How soon after high school did you do that? How long were you there? What did you experience there? I went to India a couple of times. I'd been really drawn to India, one because of the encounter with Indian spirituality through this high school teacher I mentioned through texts and um, through uh, Bede Griffiths. Some of you listening may know Father Bede Griffiths. He was a Roman Catholic priest who spent the last half of his life in India where he said he went to discover the other half of his soul. And his life really became an integration of the masculine, the feminine, of the active and the contemplative and uh, in a really profound way of uh, Hinduism and Christianity. And so he became a sort of icon of, you know, the potential integration of these traditions for me and uh, inspired me through my college years. And so I'd wanted to go to India and spend time in the community that he had left behind. I ended up going my 
final year of college to India with a Tibetan studies program. And so we were mostly up in northern India and Dharamsala and then also in Nepal and Tibet, studying Tibetan spirituality, culture, politics. So I went back uh, a few years later after college and spent most of my time in the south of India and spent time with Father Bede's community there and uh, Ramana Maharshi uh, spent time alongside his ashram community. I recall from something I read when you were in Ramana's ashram, you had a rather powerful unity experience. Yeah, when I was spending time there, I, I was working with Ramana's self-inquiry process and you know, asking the question, who am I? And as I worked with that question over and over and over, suddenly there was just a total freezing shutdown of, of the rational sort of dualistic mind, mental apparatus. And I looked out and there was a, a person, a stranger standing across from me. And, you know, there aren't good words for it, but I, I experienced an experience of no self or of uh, shared self. Um, there was no, absolutely no separation between myself, this other person, our surroundings. I was just seeing myself. We were just two poles of a single reality. Very hard to put into language, but as if all the boundaries weren't there. It, yeah. it was just uh, oneness. One self, no self, all at the same time. And it lasted for really just a few seconds, but in that experience was timeless. And then suddenly I was back in my lines and boundaries and limited self again. Very powerful experience. And I had been struggling with Ramana while I was there because often in his tradition he'll say again and again, you are not the body, calling you to awaken to ultimate self, essential self, that you're not this limited form. And I was really struggling with that because there was a sense of manifestation matters. If individuated body selves, you know, if the sole goal of life was to awaken out of these limited forms into self with a capital S, then why these forms to begin with? So there was a sense of I may not only be the body, I may not be limited to the body, but I am also the body and that matters. Manifestation and form matters. And uh, that's when I actually first encountered Teilhard de Chardin, the French Jesuit that you mentioned, Rich. Shall I tell this yeah, sure. with the story? Uh -huh. I'd been struggling with the seeming sort of uh, disembodied nature of the non-dual spirituality I was getting from Ramana. And I got up early one morning and walked up Arunachala, the sacred mountain there, and uh, listened to a monk chanting his prayers in a cave on the mountain. And I had this intuition, this impulse to not walk back down the mountain the way I'd come up. Instead, I walked down the other side and I wound up in smack in the middle of the market. And there was an elephant in the temple courtyard. There were vendors selling spices, children running and playing. It was just colors and sounds and smells. And this profound sense that this was where God was happening, in the midst of the marketplace, in manifestation, in form, in embodiment. I wound my way from the marketplace back to the ashram, and I went to the library to look for a book, something on Hinduism or Buddhism, and instead what jumped off the shelf was a spine that said the Mass on the World, or the Hymn of the Universe, by Teilhard de Chardin, which included this piece, the Mass on the World. And I read that, and he was singing the song of an incarnate God, a God who was incarnate in the cosmos as matter. Uh, and it was the perfect counterbalance to You Are Not the Body that I was getting from Ramana. Well, this harkens back to something we were talking about a few minutes ago when I asked you whether fundamentalists would agree that God is omnipresent. 
if he's omnipresent, then we're looking at him. As I said in the intro when I read the main points we we're going to talk about, and there was that quote from the Gospel of Thomas, come to know that what is before your eyes and what is hidden from you will be revealed. It seems to me that God is not merely transcendent because if he's only transcendent, then he's not omnipresent. What about all this? It must be totally infusing and permeating and orchestrating as pure intelligence all of this as well. I could say more here, but I'll let you take it from here. That's certainly my sense in the, within the Christian tradition, is that uh, the language of incarnation is so central. Uh, and Teilhard really beautifully expands that to see uh, cosmic incarnation, that the, the whole cosmos is the incarnation of God. And uh, the, the whole cosmos is actually a deepening, unfolding, deepening disclosure of the heart of God, that God is longing to come into form through the world. So if you imagine God as unmanifest ground of all possibility, those possibilities want to manifest. The heart of God wants to unfold and disclose itself. And so the world is that unfolding. And Teilhard linked that, of course, to an evolutionary worldview that saw that disclosure deepening through the evolutionary process. And so in the Christian tradition, we can see Jesus as giving voice to this cosmic incarnation, uh, having this experience, I and the Father are one. And then he initiates an unfolding awakening body. The body of Christ understood mystically is that unfolding awakening collective, and even perhaps the unfolding awakening human family. Here's something that I extracted from something you wrote. Teilhard, struck right at the heart of a tension felt by spiritual seekers throughout history, and one that I was certainly feeling, meaning you, when you wrote this, a pull between a spirituality that is all about swimming back upstream to a rarefied non-dual awakening with little relation to the world and the body, and a spirituality that is about fully embracing life in form, duality, and diversity. These seemingly contradictory upward and downward currents could be reconciled and united in a forward movement, that of an evolving universe. Right, I, th I think that's what we're picking up on today, and this also ties into that whole vision of a second axial age, sort of shift in the spiritual current, but that in past spiritual generations there's been a real focus on awakening almost out of the world and out of the body, and a sense that the spiritual path necessarily leads you away from the body, away from the world, that God is up and the body and the world is down, and so there's a tension, and you've got to choose what you want. Do you want the world, or do you want God? Um, and it really is set up as an either-or, and you see that, um, I think you see that in some monastic traditions, a real sense of an either-or. And certainly uh, the maps, uh, you know, you look at maps of the chakra system, where the goal is really sort of up and out. You want to raise the energy and uh, head out. Whereas with the sort of evolving vision, it's not either or, it's actually the two coming together and moving in a forward motion. So it's a, more about converging, collapsing, converging those two poles. And when you think the goal is uh, to get out of the world, it makes sense that you would want to swim upstream. But when you can link evolution to that and see that the world itself is actually the deepening disclosure of God, that God is wanting to unfold God's ever more, uh, then the goal isn't to get out of the world. The goal is to actually further unfold the world. Let's play with this for a few minutes. One thing is that a, a lot of these monastic traditions evolved in a time when a toothache could kill you. It was a rather brutish existence and living in a 
medieval village as a serf or something wasn't really a picnic. And, and anything you could do to get out of such an existence might be very alluring. Today, things are actually, you know, the world has its rough spots for sure, but you know, the quality of life and longevity itself is much greater than it was back in the day. Any comments on that before I go on? Uh, just that it makes sense. It makes sense that uh, when life is rough, when living in the world is very difficult, our old spiritual traditions are really filled with language of exile, that we live in exile in the world. Christian tradition sometimes speaks of it as a veil of tears, that we're moving through this veil of tears. Those images of exile have sort of dominated spiritual consciousness. And as conditions of living improve, as you said, um, maybe that, that sense doesn't have to dominate so much anymore. Yeah. Next point I want to make is in defense of the monastic or in defense of withdrawing from the world, I think periodically, and I think you would probably agree with this, it can be a good thing. There can be a cycle to one's life on a daily basis, on an annual basis or whatever, where, where one has periods of withdrawal. So Bhagavad Gita uses the phrase like a tortoise withdrawing its limbs mm -hmm. into its shell, you know, withdrawing the senses from their objects. And that sort of describes meditation in a way. But then in that same book talks about having done that, coming out again, surcharged with greater energy and intelligence and clarity of mind and, and so on. Another analogy might be if you want to shoot an arrow to hit a target, you don't just throw it or let it go. You have to pull it back first, then you can let it go, then it'll hit the target. Speak a bit about how it doesn't have to be the full dedication of all of one's life and time, but how periods of withdrawal, either daily in meditation or annually in retreats or whatever, balanced with life in the world, can be a nice uh, integration. Yeah, I think it's utterly central, as you're saying. The, the thing that was popping into my mind as you were talking was uh, the way Shankara sums up the teachings of Advaita, that the world is illusion, Brahman alone is real, Brahman is the world. And so you have to go through the negation first. The world is illusion. You negate the world so that you can touch the eternal, touch the depth, and then you come back around full circle, and then you affirm the world as the, the manifestation of the eternal. Um, and it seems like some spiritual traditions perhaps stop at the second injunction and don't make it around to the third finally. But I certainly am not against monasticism. I live alongside a community of Benedictine monks and fully believe in the monastic vocation. And I think for those who are non-monastics, the gift that monastic communities hold into being, they hold into being uh, places of retreat that have a rhythm of balanced living, of contemplation that's so needed. And I think in many ways, monastic communities, they hold models alive that the world as a whole desperately needs. They've preserved rhythm of prayer, rhythm of contemplation. They've preserved community. We've so much in the world today lost authentic community. And they've created a balanced way of life that manifests the conditions that aid awakening and that help deepen and stabilize awakening. Now, often monastic communities are celibate communities, and I think that's necessary for the manifestation of that form of life. It, you know, that's one way of being that uh, is supported by celibate life. But we've often, in the past, ranked them hierarchically, that celibacy is somehow closer to God because it's on that model of up and out. And I don't think that's the case. I, I would see celibacy as a gift that some people are called to or are given 
but it's not higher or lower in that sense. A couple of comments. One is, you, you know, you quoted Shankara, and in that tradition, they're traditionally considered to be stages of life. And, you know, the first stage, the student stage, one is celibate, and one is sort of in right. a monastic setting up until maybe the age of 25 or so, mm-hmm. just sort of laying a foundation for the rest of one's life. And then the vast majority would move on to householder life after that. Maybe a, a smaller percentage would remain monks the rest of their lives. So it was considered to be an important kind of foundation-building phase of, of life. And also another point that came to mind as you were speaking was, you know, in various traditions, Christian, Buddhist, Hindu that I can think of, it's considered that people who choose to live that life or establish these monasteries are kind of establishing coherence-generating centers for the rest of the world, sort of in a quiet way, maybe in a cave in the Himalayas, actually helping to maintain a much greater degree of peace and coherence in the world by their very existence by the the influence they they radiate from that silence. I think it's absolutely true. You know, when we have thousands of people who come through uh, Holy Cross Monastery on retreat each year, and when I first came here, you know, people talk about the experience. You step on the property and you feel the calm and the quiet and the coherence. It impacts you, and then you carry a little bit of that back into the world with you. So I do think they are sort of powerful generative centers in that sense. And uh, at its best in the Christian tradition, the language of the body of Christ, that there are different gifts, different callings, whether they be a call to an active life or a contemplative life, but they all ultimately mutually support and enrich each other. And so for those who aren't called to be monastics, it's a huge gift to them that some are, because they hold that, as you call it, you know, center of coherency into being so that you can come and be refreshed there. So there's a, a, a reciprocal feeding that happens. Because the monks, of course, are supported by those who come on retreat and make their life possible. Back in when I was your age, uh, and for many years I, I taught meditation, I taught a lot of weekend retreats. And sometimes we would have them in hotels, and other times we'd have them like in Catholic retreat centers. And I'll tell you, the, the depth of experience that would take place in a Catholic retreat center, you know, the minute you sat down that first evening for your first meditation or whatever, was generally radically better than, than you're going to get in some hotel where you had, had to kind of walk through the cocktail lounge to get to the meeting hall or something. <laughs> and I think we feel it whenever we walk into a, a church, a temple, a monastery, it is easier to drop in more deeply, more quickly. And it's interesting to actually, we don't have to dwell on this too long, but it's interesting actually to consider why that is. There must be some kind of, something structured in the atmosphere on a subtle level that we we can't necessarily see, but something that pervades and is retained even when the people aren't there or something. You walk into a temple in India where people have been worshipping for thousands of years and there's, there's something palpable in the atmosphere that has been established there in that spot. Yeah, I think it's probably a both end that, yes, there is a sort of resonant field of prayer that's built up, so you step into that vibration. And then I think also simply places of worship, they usually pay attention to aesthetics, to beauty, to balance. You walk into a space and it's designed um, just visually to pull you into center. Well, we're still talking about Tillier de Chardin and, and all, and, you know, up and out versus infusing life into the marketplace, into the, into the active world. I, I just want to, again, play devil's advocate for just one point, which is that some people I've seen take that perspective and use it as a justification for what 
almost seems like hedonism. I mean, the, it's a, sort of an excuse to baptize yeah. the impulses of the ego and say, well, everything's holy. And, yeah, so yeah. party on, you know? Right, right. <laughs> And so I think it just has to be understood properly and taken in the right context and all, and not misinterpreted. Otherwise, it's not going to do anybody any good. Right, right. And that's, again, why the traditional systems are so helpful, because they often have checks and balances in place. You know, you have a guide, you have a mentor, you have practices you're given, so that you're learning to deepen and embody and carry that into the world. But certainly, I think it's important to uplift the traditional stages that, that it's First, the world is illusion, only God is real, and then finally you can come around to God is the world. But if you start with God is the world, it can just give the ego an excuse to do whatever it wants. You know, everything's holy, I'll do whatever I want, everything's good, and you can actually be damaging and harming and hurting people along the way. So some degree of purification is necessary, and that's, you're talking about you've got to pull the bow back first, so some kind of practice that is doing that work uh, has to be a part of the picture. Yeah, and this is not a trivial point. I don't know about you, but I, I, run, and I run into this fairly often, where people are using this notion that ultimately we're all already enlightened and you know the world is an illusion and this and that to justify all kinds of egregious behavior, misbehavior that um, is harming themselves and others. And uh, you know, it might take them a while to realize that, but it's an important point. Right, and you know, this is uh, one of the reasons I think it's actually helpful in the Christian tradition that there's not been much language of enlightenment, actually. It's easy to think of enlightenment as a goal, something that the ego wants to latch onto um, and make a possession. The Christian path is pretty much universally, as you sort of trace the various lineages, talked more about what a lot of teachers today are starting to call heartfulness. You know, we often talk about mindfulness. And uh, the flavor of the Christian contemplative path is much more uh, heart-centered, heartfulness. Not to oppose mind to heart, you know. Of course, we can talk about heart-mind. But when you read writings of, say, the early desert fathers and mothers up through um, Russian Orthodox lineages that practice prayer of the heart, it's always this language of drawing the mind into the heart, anchoring awareness in the heart, cultivating qualities like humility, gentleness, surrender, and there's actually not much talk of a goal of, of enlightenment. It's just the talk of the work of cultivating the heart. And it seems to me that there's some real wisdom in that, some sort of skillful means in that, because as you cultivate the heart and the qualities of the heart, you create a ground that can then hold awakening in a stable way, so that you don't just have an awakening experience but it's not grounded in your being, so that then you just fall back into your egoic, impulsive self, and it thinks that it's a, a awake because you had some unitive experience. You you know you had a touch of oneness, and therefore I'm enlightened. And so instead, focusing on cultivating humility, simplicity, uh, love, gentleness, you just slowly walk your way into awakening, without perhaps ever even noticing it. So do you think that Christianity focuses on the heart the way you just described? instead of enlightenment because it wasn't understood that it, there is such a thing as enlightenment or you know which sometimes you get that sense because you don't find a whole lot of references to it and that in that sense you know the eastern traditions have a sort of a an advantage or are more mature in some way or do you think it's because of the things you just said where one can 
kind of try to leapfrog to this state of finality without having actually laid a foundation for it and cultured the heart and cultured all the qualities that, mm-hmm. in my opinion, enlightenment should actually include. And, right. and you actually dumb it down if you don't include those developments and those qualities of the heart and so on. You know, who knows what really happened, um, what led traditions to develop one way or the other. Certainly, maybe it would have been helpful over the centuries to have had language of enlightenment within the Christian church. Um, it didn't develop in that way. I don't want to get into, of course, ranking traditions as this one yeah. gets it better than that one. But I do think there's a mutual sort of gifting back and forth across traditions that's happening today where they can kind of um, better hone their understandings of spiritual experiences through that dialogue and through sharing language back and forth. Let me throw in here real quick that if people like St. Teresa and St. John of the Cross and St. Joseph of Cupertino and people like that weren't enlightened, then I don't know who was, you know what I mean? Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I think there's just great wisdom in the way the tradition has framed that, you know, and the Benedictine lineage and most Christian lineages, it's framed around a language of humility. You're really cultivating humility, and that cultivation readies the heart to hold awakening. I think today the language we might use is what we get from Ken Wilbur about states versus stages, mm-hmm. and that at any point in your spiritual development you can experience a high spiritual state. Uh, you know, you can have a, a unitive experience, an awakening experience, but it's just a glimpse. It's not actually grounded in your being. And uh, a stage is when you're actually living stably from that awakening. It's nice to have the language of awakening, that you know that there's a goal that you're walking towards, but it seems to me almost more important to have the path rather than the goal, uh, because the path prepares the ground for the goal to arrive in. Very important, I think. I can think of any number of teachers parodying them a little bit who you know got up there and said boy am i ever enlightened i'm about as enlightened as it's ever going to get you know i mean follow me i'm i'm really the, the cat's meow and so glaringly lacking in in humility right right usually resulting in some kind ego. of crash and burn situation eventually and they may have had some very profound and authentic state experience of awakening that then the ego latched onto and the ego identified itself as the enlightened one well, that's actually a little point that might be worth exploring for a few minutes. That syndrome, that tendency of the ego latching on to a state or an experience, becoming aggrandized through that, and uh, you know what sort of safeguards you would you have seen in, in Christianity or in your own experience, or that you would recommend to, to prevent that from happening. You know, I think having spiritual elders and mentors in your life. You know, you can't underestimate the importance of that, having someone, um, but also not turning them into gurus, realizing they still have personalities. But having someone who can kind of help guide you and help see when you're stepping off the path a little bit. Um, And again, I think the traditional religious frameworks are helpful in this regard because they give a balanced system. So when you look at the way something like uh, Buddhism has come to the West, We often think of Buddhism purely as uh, meditation practice, you know, and we often uh, interpret that through psychological, psychotherapeutic categories, you know, in the West. But of course, in a traditional Buddhist society, Buddhism is a lot more than just meditation practice. It's also devotional practice. It's sutra chanting. You go to a traditional Zen center, you're going to see bows and prostrations happening. 
all of those elements are in place. The contemplative piece, the devotional piece, the embodied piece, the mentor piece, the community piece. And when you have all that in place, there are a lot of safeguards there. You know, if you start going off this way, you're going to get bumped back. If you go that way, some, something over here is going to bump you back. When we try to go it alone, we often don't have that system and those checks and balances in place to knock us back on track. One of the things that I think is so important and that I used to ride off is devotional practice, particularly for those of us who are drawn to a more non-dual kind of unitive understanding of awakening, of reality. A devotional practice can seem dualistic and dumbed down. You know, if you have a, a God that you're devoted to, it's external um, and it's ultimately a distraction. You know, you've got to get rid of that. But I think actually those devotional practices are one of the most skillful means into a more unit of awakening because they help cultivate the qualities necessary for that awakening. So you have a focal point, be it Jesus, be it Ramakrishna, be it God as the lover, the beloved, that you cultivate your heart in relation to. You're cultivating love, cultivating devotion, and that cultivation can... Uh, give way into that experience where lover and beloved merge into oneness. And so devotional practices are actually a really quick way, I think, to rewire our consciousness towards the unitive. If the devotional practice is held against a more unitive backdrop, a unitive understanding, so that we don't just brush them aside, brush devotional practices aside. The contemplative and devotional together, I think, form a, a balance. You might like a quote from Shankara. He said, the intellect imagines duality for the sake of devotion. He himself was very devotional and wrote beautiful devotional hymns. Ramana was very devotional, Nisargadatta was, Ananda Moima, mm -hmm. just any of these sort of profoundly unity consciousness sages that we care to mention, if we look at their lives, they were very devotional. Post-unity, not just right. pre-unity, but it's something that they continued to engage in both spontaneously and kind of intentionally as some sort of you know practice, singing pujas and doing worship of various sorts, for the sake of devotion, to quote Shankara again. So, you know, I guess the question is, what is it about devotion that one would want to keep doing that? And I can come up with several answers, but I'll swing it back to you. You know, I almost said, because it's fun. Yeah, that would be one of my things, because um, it's so, it feels good. <laughs> yeah, because it feels good. I remember early on discovering non-dual teachings and really losing a sense of personal God. It no longer made any sense to me. I didn't know how to work with that, how to use it. It did seem simplistic or dumb. And, and it was really encountering voices like Ramakrishna, who had profound non-dual unitive experiences, but then also was deeply devoted to the mother, to God as Kali, Rumi, Again, profound uh, oneness experience, but also delighting in the language of the lover and the beloved. And I realized you can have both. You can have both of these. And the place I think I've come to increasingly now with it is that you can have devotion that isn't dualistic. Entering into the ground of your own heart, there is an infinite objectless tenderness and intimacy that... It's hard to call anything other than thou, uh, but it's not separate from you. It's the ground of your own heart. You are it. You can also be in love with it. Uh, it's a field of intimate relationality that, that can hold the dance of oneness and two-ness and, you know, 
all of it. Well, I think oneness and twoness can coexist simultaneously without any conflict. There's a line in the Gospel of Thomas, and I'm not going to quote it exactly right, but Jesus says, in the beginning you were one, now that you have become two, what will you do? What will you do? And, uh, you know, I hear in there an invitation to delight in, in the two-ness of things, held against the oneness of things, and devotion seems to be a really great way to awaken the qualities of the heart, like love and compassion and mercy. Yeah, which would be my second point, besides it feels good. And I'll quote you here. You said, the other is used as a focus for cultivating qualities in our own heart. As we reverence the sweetness of Mary, for instance, if Mary is our object of devotion, slowly, slowly we take on that sweetness. So the mm. objects of devotion we choose matter. They are what we'll become. I forgot writing that. I like that. That sounds yeah. good. Who wrote that? That was great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yes, yeah, the qualities, you know, the qualities we want to cultivate in our own hearts, we should look for them in our devotional focus points. Yeah. And if we see a lack in ourselves, if we see that we need to cultivate more gentleness or more sweetness, to have a devotional focal point that itself embodies those qualities, as you offer the devotion and reverence to that, you begin cultivating those qualities in yourself. If on the other side, perhaps you're a little too gentle and sweet and you need some fierceness, maybe you know you want Kali as a focal point, <laughs> but that our objects of devotion do matter because uh, what we give our devotion to, we will become. Yeah, that to which you give your attention grows stronger in your life. And one kind of point I would throw in here is that I think that there is a never-ending possibility for further refinement and subtlety and um, maybe divinization would be a, a, a good word here. Even if we were profoundly established in a unitive state, there's no end of, of possible refinement of the senses, the heart, just all the various facets of our this instrument with which we've been gifted. And devotion is perhaps one of the most efficacious ways of bringing about that continuing refinement. And again, the question, why is the world even here? So that those qualities can come into manifestation, so that those names of God can be spoken into being. You know, what is love as a potential that exists in the unmanifest ground of being? What is beauty? What is joy? It seems to me that there are certain qualities of, of love, of beauty, of joy, that really only take on meaning in manifestation. Yeah. Uh, and that those potentialities, they long to be expressed. And like you said, that the expression and the, ref the refinement of those expressions is potentially infinite, which is why I imagine cosmos upon cosmos will continue unfolding uh, <laughs> forever because the ground of being itself is infinite and therefore the possible expressions are infinite. That's nice. I am one may have become many. You know, if you're lying in a bathtub and you've been lying there for a while and, you know, lying quietly and still, you don't feel the warmth anymore. But if you slosh around a little bit, you know, you feel, ah, this feels good. It feels warm. Right. So it's like God is kind of sloshing around here in the universe by creating this manifest world and, and entering into it and playing within it and, and so on. Right. And awakening ever more deeply as it. Um, and and yeah. as our species continues, God willing, to evolve, uh, we have the potential to refine and deepen that expression of, of these qualities of, of love and beauty and delight and joy and 
compassion. So that's, that's the trajectory in an evolutionary model. You know, it's not to get out of the world so that you can get to the beauty of God. It's to get more deeply into the world so that you can carry that forward. Okay, so we've touched upon a few things here. We've talked a little bit about Teilhard de Chardin. We talked about the second axial age a little bit. We talked about devotion. <laughs> Before we move on to anything else, we kind of like plowed through those things. Are there, are there any sort of bits and pieces in those areas that we haven't discussed that you'd like to hash out? We didn't really say too much about what the idea of a second axial age is. Do you think that's something yeah, let's get into people that. would yeah. be interested yeah, in? Yeah, I found your um, talk on that to be very inspiring at the SAN conference. Let's get into that. The idea of an axial age came from a German philosopher, Karl Jaspers. He posited that sort of roughly between 800 and 200 BCE, there was this window of time when the headwaters of all the existing religious traditions began forming pretty much independently around the world. You had Confucius teaching in China, you had Lao Tzu teaching the way of the Tao, you had the seers of the Upanishads, the Greek philosophers, the Hebrew prophets, all of this sort of going on at the same time. The idea is that with that there was a, a shift that happened in spiritual understanding that before this sort of axial age, human spirituality had been really deeply grounded in the earth, in cycles and seasons of nature, and that our identity was really rooted in a sense of tribe, of collective, and that that tribal collective identity took precedence over my individual identity. And with the axial shift, all that sort of broke open, and we started looking for a transcendent God. That's when spirituality started developing as a path of ascent. You know, that's when we started getting the up and out of the world. We also started losing our ties to the earth. And uh, the way of the individual uh, started opening up. And you could break ties with your family. You could go off into the forest. You could uh, leave your tribal gods like Abraham and Sarah did. Or like the Buddha left his wife and child in the palace to go search for enlightenment. And the idea is that that model has been driving human spirituality largely for the last couple thousand years or so. And that now as we're entering this global era with an evolutionary understanding, it's all shifting again. And we're picking up essentially everything that we lost in the first axial shift, that connection to the earth, that sense of collective identity, all that's coming back, but not at the tribal level, now it's coming back at the global level. In the process, we're not losing everything we've gained um, with the focus on the individual and the transcendent. Now we actually can tie the two together. Uh, we can sort of wed the imminent, the transcendent spirit and body, heaven and earth. And again, in that evolutionary under model, you know, that it's all driving somewhere. So that's the, the sort of basic framework of what the second axial age is. And that I think the really cool thing there is that we've often lumped all the religions in as first axial religions. But when you start looking at them, you see threads of second axial understanding growing in all of them. In Buddhism with the Mahayana vow. Uh, the Bodhisattva vow, I'm sorry, in Mahayana Buddhism, the model shifts from my personal enlightenment and attaining nirvana to forswearing your final liberation so that you can work for a collective awakening. So the model shifts. It's not up and out. It's sort of belonging to the phenomenal world and working for the awakening of all of us together. And I think you could see the emergence of Jesus, see him as an initiator of second axial consciousness. You could see the same thing happening in Islam. One thing I think about when I think about the Bodhisattva vow is that from the perspective of I am me, I am this individuality, 
and it sucks, you know, it's suffering, and I just want it to sort of merge into the ocean of consciousness and be, be gone. It's sort of a very individual perspective, whereas the bodhisattva perspective is more like my individuality, such as it is, is a tool of the divine, and I am happy to not destroy the tool, not, have, not dissolve the tool, but have it continue as, as long as the divine wishes to use it as an instrument for good in the world, for upliftment of the world, and so on. It's, it's more, it's, to me, it seems like a more, a less selfish, more surrendered kind of mm-hmm. perspective. Right, it makes sense to me that it's no longer about my awakening, or uh, it's a surrendering yourself into, again, cosmic servanthood. Yeah. You know, take this, use this. Uh, for the awakening of all. And there, there may still be a bit of the first axial map embedded in that because the goal is still the awakening and liberation of all beings. It's almost, I'm going to hang around so I can help everyone get up and out. Uh, is sometimes the, perhaps, you know, the undercurrent there. But to see it instead as so we can awaken collectively to further evolve the world together. Uh, yeah. I mean, you could sort of think of a bodhisattva well, where it wasn't, I'm going to help everybody get up and out, but I'm going to help make this a heaven on earth, which will continue to right. be an earth, but a heavenly one. Right, and that's the, the again, the marrying of the two, yeah. bringing them together. So if the second actual age is just dawning, kind of, where do you think it might be 500 or 1,000 years from now, if it really fully blossoms? I guess the exciting thing is that we don't know, you know? It's, we're always stepping forward into mystery, but if... Ideally, more human beings are awakening together. Uh, spiritual consciousness is taking a greater hold. More people are living and seeing from a, a place of unitive experience. Teilhard, he sort of saw it as, he said, we're moving out of the evolution up until this point has followed a process of divergence. And so as humanity fanned out around the planet, uh, we evolved divergent cultures, divergent languages, but because of the limited spherical surface area of the planet, initially, eventually, a process of convergence would happen, and that we're essentially at the beginnings of that global convergence right now. So one would hope that it would be a movement towards greater peace, greater harmony, working together as a global collective. We know, we know that we have enough planetary resources to end world hunger. If we chose to organize as a global collective rather than to continue thinking in tribal national terms yeah like let's build walls Um, i actually ended up um extracting that bit from your writing he said uh, divergence would reach an end point and a second phase of evolution would begin convergence the convergence of diverse peoples cultures and religions would result in the emergence of a global consciousness and what Teilhard called creative unions new arrangements of higher order complexity that would bring an entirely new and unprecedented evolutionary tier into being to my mind that would sort of mean you know, you look at old Star Trek episodes and the world wasn't fragmented into all separate little countries. It was one harmonious whole. And then what we could even, to get a little bit more science fiction-y, we could sort of take it out into, you know, even larger holes because obviously we, we probably live in a universe teeming with life and we don't really deserve to belong to any larger collective as long as we haven't even achieved any sort of unity here on our little planet. So for Teilhard, a creative union opened a new evolutionary playing field. So every time a creative union happened, a new possibility, a new tier was opened in evolution. So it starts with 
atoms joining together into molecules. And an atom gives up something of its autonomy to create a higher level, higher order of complexity in a molecule. Now, atoms in a molecule don't merge into sameness. It's not that now they're all the same. You still have, you know, two H's and an O in water, but the autonomy is given up for that higher order to emerge. This is what turned Teilhard off to some forms of what he would have called Eastern mysticism that saw the mystical journey as returning to sort of an uncarved block, returning to a primordial oneness, um, an undifferentiated primordial oneness. He instead wanted us to move forward to a fully differentiated oneness. Can we achieve oneness that's differentiated and diverse and yet unified as opposed to erasing diversity and differentiation into, you know, the primordial soup? So he, he imagined that the juncture we're at now is that we're being offered the opportunity to open a new evolutionary playing field through creative union at the next level. And it's through a union of human intelligences. We've grown accustomed to looking for evolution in the, what he called the biosphere, in the sphere of organic life. But the next leap, he says, is actually in what he calls the noosphere, uh, from the Greek nous for consciousness. It's evolution and consciousness. That's the next step. And so we won't reach unity through uh, emerging of, you know, physical bodies. It'll be emerging in consciousness. And those qualities like love and will, you know, that we have to come together at that level and um, form a, a new higher order being uh, is the language that we will become a single being, you know, a single organism in a way. And uh, he imagined that as, as the mystical body of Christ, as, you know, the human family working together as a single mystical body in which diversity and differentiation is maintained. Again, it's not we're going to lose all of our diversity differentiation and melt into a soup. We're going to find unity within and through that. Nice. Since we're in a hot political season right now, we don't have to get into the specifics, but it's interesting to evaluate the various um, political stances and candidates in light of what you just said. You know, are they into divisiveness and mm-hmm. isolationism and, mm-hmm. you know, not caring about what our neighbors are, are experiencing or deprived of? Or are they into sort of helping everyone achieve right. some kind of quality of life and uh, happiness and, and so on? And- when you look at the candidates that are into divisiveness and into sort of nationalism, the impulses you know, that are motiv- motivating that are often fear. Yeah. They're working with and manipulating fear. We know that contemplative practice actually has the possibility to evolve consciousness, evolve our minds. You know, when neuroscience looks at what contemplative practice does, very often we sort of operate on autopilot. So some experience comes into our, into our reality, into our field of perception, and very often we move into the least evolved, lowest part of our brain, <laughs> our sort of lizard, yeah. reptilian brain yeah. that governs our fight-or-flight responses, mm-hmm. that governs our, it's all fear-based response. Contemplative practice actually creates enough inner spaciousness so that when a stimuli comes into your field of experience, rather than immediately routing that through and interpreting it through your lizard brain, it can actually be routed through the higher, more evolved parts of your brain, through your prefrontal lobes, through your neocortex, 
and uh, it opens you to capacity for creative intelligence that isn't accessible to you when you're operating out of fear. And so anytime I see a political candidate using fear, you know, I think they're essentially trying to devolve us or, or limit our evolutionary capacity. There's actually physiological research on that sort of thing with, you know, meditators showing that experienced meditators are much less reactive as measured by things like galvanic skin response to stressful stimuli. And that also the kind of, you know, there's a whole PTSD thing that's such an issue these days where people's nervous systems have been so stressed by, you know, traumatic situations that they remain in a state of fight or flight. And the whole biochemistry is always upset and they're so easily triggered by this or that. And that can all be kind of reversed and Mm -hmm. healed through contemplative practices, you would put it, or various meditative practices. Right. And then perhaps it's helpful to not think of contemplative as only, you know, sitting cross-legged on a cushion, but, you know, there are lots of practices and experiences that can cultivate contemplative awareness and spaciousness, whether it's a daily 20-minute sit or taking a walk in nature. I remember hearing Richard Rohr, a Franciscan priest, saying once, he was asked if he could recommend one practice from his tradition, and only one, what would he recommend? And he said, spend long periods of time in nature. You know, that being in nature has a way of slowing and stilling, uh, so anyway, yeah, it sure yes, does. the contemplative, contemplative can look like different kinds of things. Interesting also that certain political factions would tend to want to commercialize nature and, and destroy it in various ways for, for short-term gain, which again makes it seem like they're trying to devolve us. Right. So, you know, the question I think when we're voting or doing anything else is where is fear? Where is a movement back towards tribalism? Where's love and a movement towards a more universal appreciation of the human family? Because that's where it's headed, I think, by hook or by crook. If it doesn't end up there, then we may exterminate ourselves as a species. If Which we, will be just fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the world will do fine, the universe will do fine, and we'll do fine because we'll probably get reincarnated somewhere else. But, you know, we've got a pretty good situation going here. It'd be nice to kind of keep it going. and. It's taken millions of years for the human species to reach the point, billions of years, if we start with, you know, the explosion of this universe into being, for us to reach this point in our evolution, to have the capacity to disclose the divine qualities that we have, the ability to manifest beauty and love that we're capable of, of manifesting. So it would be a huge shame to cut this experiment short, to not refine it further, to not deepen it more. But should we cut the experiment short, the heart of God will go on disclosing itself, you know, evolution will pick up with the next species and, you know, another world somewhere else is unfolding another reality. So yes, we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously that we're the end all be all of the universe, but we should also take ourselves seriously, you know, that we don't want to waste what it's taken the universe billions of years to arrive at through us. Yeah, good point. I agree. But God has a lot invested in this this little right. <laughs> corner of things. Now, here's an abrupt segue for you. This doesn't happen too often anymore, but in the past when I was accosted by fundamentalists, I would start talking astronomy to them. I would start saying, talking about how big the universe is and how you know the evidence that there is life elsewhere is pretty clear. And if if Jesus is the only way, 
what about all these other places? Is he on tour? Does he spend 32 years on each of these other inhabited places? But there's probably billions of them. And if, if there are billions of them and the world is only 6,000 years old, how does he do it? It's like, how does Santa Claus get everywhere on Christmas Eve? Do you ever still run into that mindset? And how do you deal with it? So the sort of sense of Christian exclusivity and that is, that's what you're getting at, do I? Yeah, which is not exclusive to Christians. There seems to be a certain mindset in every religion of that nature. Not so much Hinduism, because they're sort of like, okay, it's, everybody's a Hindu. But, but even, even there, in Hinduism, you get fundamentalism. You and do. You get, yeah, yep. yeah, you get it everywhere. It's just part of human nature, it seems. And of course, there are ways to interpret those verses within the Christian tradition. The verses that you can use like as the I most... Like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh right. under the Father but my me. How would you interpret that one? Right, you can use it in the most limited, exclusive way, or you can hear it as the most universal statement, you know, that right. anyone who's coming to God, in whatever way, they're coming through me because I am in all ways, you know. If you hear that as, as the way the Gospel of John opens, and the beginning was the Word, the Logos, it's this universal cosmic reality, it's one with God, through which God creates the worlds and interfaces with the worlds, and if Jesus is speaking with that cosmic voice, you can't hear it exclusively. Which he often said, did. I mean, wasn't there a thing, be, be, what was it, before Abraham was, I am, or something? I am. Yeah, that kind of thing. And these are all lines from the Gospel of John, which, um, you know, New Testament scholars would tell us it's the latest of the four canonical Gospels to be written. So the words here are probably not the words of the historical Jesus. Um, Jesus probably didn't go around speaking in these lofty sort of declarative statements, I am this and I am that. That language isn't present in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So it's probably better to see John as this uh, sort of poetic uh, rumination on the meaning of Jesus for the Christian community that early Christians said, in him we have found the way, the truth, and the life. In him we have found the true vine and bread from heaven. But those statements, again, uh, even if we believe they were literally spoken by Jesus, I think the call is to hear them in the most universal, inclusive way possible, which I think is the call for all of our religious traditions now. What is the most universal, inclusive, and beautiful vision of our traditions that we can each step up and offer to the world? Because again, I think the traditions are needed, their treasures are needed, and so how can we offer them in the most all-encompassing way, because that's the only way forward. Yeah, nice. Well, this actually sort of segues into another thing I have in my notes here, which is um, the whole notion of belief versus experience. You hear religious people saying, well, I believe this and I believe that. And, you know, someone might say to you or say to me, you know, well, what do you believe? And my answer would be, you know, it doesn't really matter what I believe. It matters what I experience. And if I experience it, then I believe it, which is not to say I don't believe in certain things that I haven't yet experienced. I, I believe, mm -hmm. we, you know, I've been talking about alien civilizations in this conversation. I believe they're out there. I haven't experienced them. But ultimately, when it comes to spiritual matters, in, in my opinion, it's really about experiencing it. You know, you, you can stand out on the sidewalk and believe that the food in a restaurant is really delicious, but you're going to starve to death if you don't go in there and eat it. Right, <laughs> right. This understanding of what you're talking about is experience. It's much closer to the early Christian conception of belief. So in the Nicene Creed that Christians recite uh, week after week in congregational worship, creed from credo comes from the same root as cardia, as heart. And it was understood to mean I give my heart to. Belief was something that sort of involved your whole self. 
post-Western European rational enlightenment, belief has become something that's cognitive and intellectual. It's all about intellectual assent. Uh, I think belief in the early centuries of the Christian church, it was about practice. It was about giving yourself. It was about experiencing. And it's only in the last few hundred years that we've actually divorced it into this very cognitive, mental-based kind of thing. And as you mentioned fear earlier, it's, it almost seems that there's a fear associated with this cognitive mental sort of thing where, you know, if you don't believe this, you're going to be in big trouble. You know, you better believe right. We've this. got to protect the truth. We've got to guard the truth and right. we've got to protect it. Don't read books. Don't listen to these other right. people. It's the devil trying to get you. Right, which is, uh, you know, I remember the old saying that uh, belief clings while faith lets go. And I think there's something perhaps uh, truth in that. Belief, at least when we understood belief in this tight cognitive uh, protective kind of sense that belief has to clutch and grab onto something while his faith is really this open stance opening to the universe uh, surrendering opening to what is and I mean if you think about what Jesus was who he was or or Buddha or any of these great teachers they weren't just guys who had like these tremendous beliefs and they were really gung-ho about these beliefs they were guys who were living a very profound level of experience and calling people into their experience, calling people to participate in that reality that they were embodying themselves. Yeah. That seems pretty evident when you read the Gospels or the teachings of the Buddha. Yeah. And I mean, if, if Jesus said, well, if you believe this, then, you know, such and such will happen, then, you know, I don't think he was saying that it's adequate just to believe it, but rather belief is maybe the first step. You know, if, if I believe that, I don't know, that, there's a road that'll take me to California, then great. But that doesn't mean I'm in California. It means I could confidently get on this road and start driving and I'll end up in California. So it's like he was offering a, a promise or a, you know, a, a vision of what might be if you, you know, okay, okay, believe what I'm saying, folks, but now embark on the journey to experience it. We have to place our trust in something if we're to move forward. So if we're going to take on a practice without yet knowing what the fruits of that practice are, you know, we need to trust that the practice will be efficacious so that we actually will give ourselves to it. That trust usually comes from having seen the fruits of the practice and the one who gives you the practice. Yeah, yeah. You know, so if Jesus says, do this, and you see the fruits of mercy, gentleness, love, compassion embodied in his being, then you think, okay, I will do that because it looks like it works. Work for him. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and he right. said, and, you shall know them by their fruits again. So. Right. Whereas we've turned Christianity often into not place your trust in this and then set your foot on the path and walk in and body, but believe this. Here's the Nicene Creed checklist. Believe this, and that's it. You're done. Yeah, and you know, not to pontificate too much, but I've often thought that the reason that fundamentalists get so defensive is that they don't actually believe the things that they are supposed to believe because they don't have a foundation to their, an experiential foundation to their belief. So they're kind of on real shaky ground and a lot of things can seem very threatening to beliefs that are just hanging in the air without a foundation. You know, this is the situation that I think so much of Christianity has found itself in post-modernity. And one of the reasons I think fundamentalists are compelling to a lot of people, why they still do draw in numbers, because uh, often uh, more progressive liberal forms of Christianity tend to water our narrative down because we want to be inclusive. We're a little embarrassed about our past and um, our exclusivity and colonialism. The so we kind of water, <laughs> right, Inquisition. So we sort of water the whole thing down. And actually what's left isn't all that compelling or, mm. or forceful. Whereas 
the fundamentalists, they have a really compelling uh, narrative. You know, if, if you're able to step into its confines, it explains everything. It gives you black and white answers. But it's at the cost of forfeiting everything we've learned over the past century or so. Uh, you have to give up all that information. And that's why someone like Teilhard de Chardin is so helpful. He steps into a traditional religious system. He doesn't water down the dogma or the doctrine. Instead, he looks at it anew within an evolutionary context. And he sort of links it up to that so that it, it carries forward. And I think that's, instead of throwing out the religions, we need people with second axial consciousness to step into the religions and take their treasures and resources and carry them forward in a second axial way rather than take them backwards into the fundamentalist roadmap or just throw them away altogether. Yeah, Henry David Thoreau said something like, it's okay to have castles in the air, that's where they belong. Just put foundations under them. Under them. <laughs> yeah, so you don't have to water it down. I mean, all the, the most marvelous uh, aspects of the traditions can be taken seriously and literally, and it's very profound and inspiring, but there really needs to be a foundation. And I would say the foundation is to actually experience what... Right these guys were talking about when they, all the things they said, to have it be a living reality rather than just, as you said, an intellectual conceptual reality. And Christianity somewhere along the way sort of installed the glass ceiling in relation to what's allowed for the individual Christian to experience. Mm. So you have Jesus in the Gospel of John praying something like, and again, are these the words of the historical Jesus or later Christian reflection? Either way, you have him saying things like, I am the Father, I am God, are one. And then he goes on right after that to pray, may they all be one as you and I are one. And so there's a call for the whole body of Christ, the whole community of believers to step experientially into that oneness. May they all be one just as I am one with God. But very quickly, Christians sort of drew the line and said, well, let Jesus say that, but no one else can say it. <laughs> um, and so we sort of isolate that experience Put it on a pedestal, let him experience it, and then we stop stepping into the experience ourselves. Yeah, we're all poor, miserable sinners, and that's what we're all, all right, right. ever going to so be. Right, right. And so we negate all these prayers. You know, St. Paul who says, put on the mind of Christ. Jesus who says, may they all be one as I and God are one. There's a clear call to step experientially into the consciousness of Jesus' own lived experience. So the, the fundamentalists just kind of cherry-pick and ignore the things you're just quoting? Well, everybody cherry-picks, fundamentalist or otherwise. Yeah. I guess um, we're cherry-picking uh, here, too. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, and, and you take your framework, and then you read things through the limitation of the narrative that you impose on it. And so if you start with a fundamentalist framework and narrative, you're going to try to read everything in that light. If you start with a contemplative, progressive, evolutionary framework and narrative, you're going to read it in that light. Yeah. Um, another thing you talked about quite a bit is the divine feminine, the mother, she who is, this is her time, that she is coming forward in the spiritual landscape and that we must work to honor and cultivate her presence. Let me read a little bit more here. What is wisdom? I think this was from the wisdom of Solomon. She is the mobility of movement. She is the transparent nothing that pervades all things. She is the breath of God, a clear emanation of divine glory. Although she is one, she does all things. Without leaving herself, she renews all things. 
early 18th century Roman Catholic Saint Louis de Montfort believed that for the fullness of Christ to come into our world, Mary must shine forth more than ever in mercy, power, and grace. Indeed, whether we call her Mary, Tara, this is your writing now, whether we call her Mary, Tara, Kuan Yin, Kali, or Sophia, the time of the mother is upon us. Let's talk about that a little bit. You know, part of it, I think, has to do with uh, the second axial map we were working with, that in pre-axial spirituality, there was a strong sense of the feminine and of the earth and of the mother. And then post-axial spirituality, there was much more emphasis on the transcendent, on God as Father, and the emergence of the patriarchal cultures that have really dominated the world for the last few thousand years. And now as we sort of turn the spiral again, we're picking back up the feminine. But I almost think that it's not helpful. There's sort of two lines of development here. We have to uplift the feminine, which has been suppressed, but we also, I think, at the same time, have to move beyond the binary altogether because it's a period of integration. And so it's not now an age of the feminine trumps the age of the masculine. Instead, we need an integration that moves beyond binary identities. It was kind of like you were saying earlier, each new teaching and teacher is building upon, it's like, who was it? Newton said he stood upon the shoulder of giants. So we're building upon the previous things, not sort of wiping them away and, and starting afresh. Right. So reclaiming the feminine, uh, reclaiming the earth, reclaiming the mother, all that seems important. But if we just focus there, I think we, we miss the point and we stay stuck in binaries. And it seems to me that just the concept of masculine or feminine as sort of archetypal, this sort of essentialist conception of the masculine and feminine, that it's actually deeply problematic because it's so culturally constructed. What is feminine or what is masculine varies from culture to culture. And so to uplift you know, one set of qualities as the archetypal feminine, well, it's just not true, you know, or it's, it's culturally relative in that sense. I think, ideally, we're moving into an era in which we don't see people as masculine or feminine. We see people, each individual, as a unique combination of human qualities. Moving away from binary gender identities, this is one of the great things happening because of awareness around gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgendered minorities, that they're helping break us out of binary thinking altogether. And I think when I was writing, using that language even of uplifting the feminine, I honor what I said there, and then I also think we've got to go beyond that. Just to have you elaborate a little bit more, you hear a lot these days about the divine feminine. Maybe you could just elaborate a, a bit more about what that actually means and um, what impact the enlivenment of it might be having or might have on our world. On one level, we're talking about not the suppression of the feminine, but the suppression and the oppression of women. And we can talk about uplifting women to fall into the gendered language of feminine and masculine. It seems to reinforce culturally constructed ideas of what those are, and that woman is feminine, and that I think that whole gendered binary language is problematic. Um, but to say that there are qualities that perhaps culturally we have associated as feminine that have been suppressed that we want to raise those up as important. And does that follow? It kind of does. And I, I don't think you're suggesting that in an enlightened world we'd all be androgynous, although I've heard of esoteric 
woo-woo people saying that there are you know planets where right. that's the way it is and so on and so forth. I think we uh, would all be our utterly unique selves. Everyone a unique expression. Everyone a unique combination of these qualities that we might call masculine or feminine. That they manifest in different degrees and combinations in every person. But that there's not, you know, a, perhaps an ideal... We often talk about sort of moving towards a balanced, integrated equilibrium of these qualities, which seems like an erasure of diversity, that everyone's supposed to come to a, a sameness, whereas I would rather celebrate diverse. the diverse range of human qualities and all of their combinations and possibilities. Well, look at nature itself. I mean, how diverse it is, how many species there are, and, and if just an incredible diversity, even human beings. I mean, no two faces are the same out of 8 billion people. Although there are people who make a living because they look like George Clooney or something. But basically, you know, we're, all, we're all distinct and unique. Well, before we can move towards that celebration of, of our diversity, we have to uplift all of those voices and expressions that have been oppressed, suppressed, silenced. And so that includes women, that includes gay and lesbian folks, that includes transgendered folks. So there has to be a healing before there can be a, an integration and celebration. Yeah. And again, it's interesting to look at political orientations and which orientation tends to do that more than the other, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, which one is perhaps more a harbinger? Evolutionary. Uh, yeah, evolutionary, a harbinger of things that hopefully are to come a world that hopefully is to, to be born. When I think of the whole divine feminine and, and having that dawn in, in the world more, I kind of think of you know feminine as nurturing, caring, and how that is so critically needed in terms of our environment and uh, you know the fact that we're killing off 150 to 200 species every day, mm-hmm. going, going extinct and just destroying our home planet, our, the only one we have. That largely due to the preponderance of the intellectual qualities and, you know, just science at the expense of the heart, at the expense of spirituality and money at the expense of the environment and so on. There's just a sort of a, a lack of feeling inherent in the way we treat animals and the planet and so on that it seems to me is the antithesis of motherliness and femininity and so on. I agree with you, I, and I, I think that uh, the qualities that you're naming as feminine, nurturance, so I, I do think perhaps we have suppressed qualities like that, and it's allowed us to destroy the earth, commodify the earth. The question I'm raising is, is also part of the problem, the gendering of that quality to begin with. Yeah, I mean, a good, a good father is protective of his family and care and providing and caring. And so, so there's, a, there's a nurturing quality there, too. So there's a quality that we've suppressed, by and large, as a species within patriarchal cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's half of our population we've suppressed, women. Right. And we've associated the quality with the sex. And I'm saying we need to uplift women... And we also need to free the quality, in a way. Uh, And to continue calling it a feminine quality is to continue to gender it. And gendering, we walk into a binary. Masculine, feminine, male, female. And if we could break out of the binary gendering altogether, Mm -hmm. let there be as many genders as there are human beings, (laughs) um, 
free and liberate those qualities for all of us. Seems to me like that's a helpful direction to move in, perhaps. It does. And I guess when you were saying that, I was thinking, well, yeah, but the, the freeing of that quality is also going to be the freeing of, of half the population. It's inextricably linked, the two of those. And but all women may not, and I can't speak for all women, all women may not find that one of their primary natural qualities or tendencies, right. or want to. I but it implies yeah. that that's a woman's quality. Right. Okay, I think I get your point. That we're just all an infinitely complex mixture of qualities that we just need to, to blossom in our, in our unique fullness. And I'll just throw in one point here, which is that if you have, a, let's say, a, 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 rain, a jungle or a forest and the soil is deficient, then all the plants are going to be less diverse, less rich, less vibrant, perhaps all looking gray or something. Whereas if you, you know, have a really rich soil in the forest, then each of the plants is going to thrive fully as as what it is, you know, and, mm-hmm. and the whole thing will look much more diverse and, and alive and rich and so on. So the ground in this metaphor would be, in my understanding, consciousness itself. And if, as that awakens in the world, the diversity, you know, when we think of consciousness, we think of sort of unification and oneness, but that the enlivenment of consciousness is actually going to enhance the diversity because mm-hmm. that's, that's the life stuff of all of us, and that it's that which enables us to sort of be fully what we are. Right, that all of the that consciousness is the ground of all potentiality yeah. that holds all qualities, all potential qualities, and that if each of us are a name of God being spoken into being, that's a unique combination of qualities that, that only we can manifest individually. That's what I was trying to say. You said it much better. All right, let's uh, throw out one more thing here. Unless you think of even more things, but there's one other thing I have in my notes which might be fun to touch upon, and that is, uh, like you use the phrase Buddhist Christian, and you, you, you mixed a number of other ones like that, uh, you know, Muslim, Hindu, or whatever. There seem to be a lot of people who are mixing traditions, mm-hmm. and the, the sort of symbiosis of the different traditions is, is really helping them. One person, for instance, said, Jesus tells me to love my neighbor, and the Buddhist tells me how to love my neighbor. So you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. That was a a friend of mine in college who identified as a Buddhist Christian, and she said that Jesus told her to love her neighbor, and the Buddha told her how. And it was that Buddhism gave her practices, teachings on contemplative practice, that at the time weren't as available or accessible to her in Christianity. And I think that's often what happens. Someone finds that some facet of their soul, some longing of their being, isn't being developed, cultivated, spoken to within the tradition that perhaps they were given in childhood. And they go to another tradition to find uh, resources that develop that part of themselves. And that can go in different ways. Sometimes they go and find that in another tradition. And then they come back to the original tradition. And having found it in that tradition, now they can locate it in the original tradition and sort of awaken and aliven it there. So they maintain a primary identity as a Christian but their Christianity has been enlivened by encounter with another tradition. Some people then forever maintain a dual identity. I'm a Hindu Christian. Or a Hindu, a friend of mine. Or a Hindu, right, or a a Jubu. All of these different combinations that people are claiming. It's all good. It all belongs. This is part of that process of convergence that Teilhard talked about. As religions meet, they're going to mix, mingle, infuse one another, and 
I think it has to be discerned on a case-by-case -case basis whether or not that's a distraction for someone on their spiritual path or whether it's a deepening for them on their spiritual path. One possibility that a lot of spiritual teachers warn against is flitting from tradition to tradition. Uh, and they say that every time you start coming to the hard work in one tradition, well, then you just bounce over to another one. And that you have to choose one well in order to dig deep to holy water, you know, and otherwise it's just shallow surface skimming. And I think sometimes that's true. But the thing that blew that open for me was when a, a Ramakrishna Swami said to me, there's a difference between digging 15 shallow wells and using 15 tools to dig one well. Right. And so that's the other possibility, is that you gain tools from different traditions that help different parts of your own spiritual unfolding. I still think for most of us, it's probably helpful to have a primary tradition that gives you a container, a framework, and practices so that you can dig deep. But again, I think it's a case-by-case -case basis. Some people certainly, I believe, are being vocationally called to stand in two or more traditions as an act of healing, reconciliation, as a way of speaking some new reality into the world. And I think some people are also being called to stand outside of the traditions altogether. You know, that they're not going to hold a traditional religious identity and they'll cultivate spaces outside of the religions. And I think conversations need to be happening between all those different groups. I think it's good. I think it's just like we've got, you know, fusion cuisine in some restaurants. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it works really well and sometimes it's not very good at all. Mm -hmm. So again, case by case, how traditions meet an individual souls is a discernment. Yeah, I wonder if things continue to converge, to use Teilhard's term, if we'll not only end up with a um, kind of a one-world civilization with, without all kinds of separate countries, but also a one-world spirituality, perhaps with various streams and, and mm -hmm. variations within it, but just a sort of a unified thing where, you know, it would seem absurd to uh, say that my thing is better than your thing and my way or the highway could be like that 500, 1,000 years from now, or maybe even sooner, right. I don't know. And maybe it's a both-and scenario again, that if traditions dissolve their claims to uh, competition, superiority, conflict, and they can become transparent to each other, the diversity of the traditions need not be lost in that process. Yeah. Just like the diversity of human beings need not be lost. And so you can still have people holding the Buddhist current of spirituality into being, the Christian current, the Sufi Muslim current, um, as unique streams. You also can have people mingling streams. You also can have people representing something universal. You know, it can just be all of it. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Anything we haven't covered? So many things. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. That's why you'll have to interview someone else next time. <laughs> uh, I will. There'll be a, every week a new one. Well, I don't go to church, but if I lived in Woodstock, New York, I would go to yours. Oh, I'd love to have you there. If you're ever up, feel free to stop by. Yeah, I'm sure it's really an enjoyable service to participate in. I'll probably see it coming to sand this year. I don't know if I'll be at Sand this year. I think I'm going to miss it this year and maybe hopefully be there again next year. Right. But my good friend and teacher, Cynthia Bourgeau, I think she may be at Sand this year as a Christian voice. Oh, that's good. So, and Richard Rohr is going to be there, too. Good, good. And I've been having a hard time landing both of them for interviews, so maybe I'll snag them there. Okay, <laughs> good, good, good. 
All right, thanks. So let me just make a few concluding remarks. I've been speaking with Matthew Wright, and there will be a page on batgap.com about this interview with links to anything Matthew wants us to link to, which will lead you to ways of getting in touch with him. Do you do anything kind of remotely, like Skype consultations or anything, you know, or do you just pretty much serve a local congregation? It's mostly local. Sometimes I meet with people for spiritual direction one-on-one here at the monastery, serve the local congregation. We've got a weekly Gospel of Thomas discussion group and Contemplative Eucharist, but I'd be happy to connect with people uh, through email uh, or possibly Skype now and then. Yeah, so they can get in touch with you if they want to do that, and maybe some will. I don't think you've written a book. Have you written a book? No, no. no, just Just things on websites. Right, an MDiv thesis and articles online. Yeah, Yeah. maybe at some point you'll glom it all together into a book. (laughs) That would be nice, one day, (laughs) if there's the time. Yeah. All right, thanks. Let me make a a few concluding remarks in general about BatGap. It's uh, batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. Go there and you'll find a number of things. It'll be pretty obvious, like a place to sign up for the audio podcast, a place to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted, index of past interviews, page where it lists all the upcoming interviews, a place to suggest a guest if you have someone in mind or vote for someone who's already been suggested, and a new thing that just evolved significantly, which is this geographical index page where, for instance, if, um, if Matthew registers for it and you were to type in someplace, let's say you typed in Newburgh, New York, which is not where he was located, you would then see, oh, X number of miles away, there's this guy in Woodstock, New York, doing things. And you'd also see New York City, and you'd see everything within a certain radius, maybe 500 miles that was, uh, oh, was wow. happening there. So that's the geographical index page. It's under the, I think it's under the resources menu. That's it. Thanks for listening or watching. Thank you again, Matthew. I really enjoyed this, as I knew I would. Take care, and take care to those who have been watching. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Rick. See you next time. You're welcome. Bye-bye.